Welcome again to uh, Midtown Home Churches that are uh, live streaming and joining us as best as virtually possible. Um, and welcome to you all in the room uh, who have brought the body of Christ, who have brought the church uh, into this space. It's a joy to be with you. So uh, whether at home uh, or in the room, we are, we are studying um, the book of 1 Thessalonians. We've been in it for three or four weeks. This is our, our fifth week in it, and um, we're looking at it kind of chunk by chunk and as a very brief overview of uh, what has uh, taken place in uh, Thessalonica, the context of what is going on for Paul to write this letter. just want to give you a quick hit on that to, to kind of bring us up to speed. Thessalonica was a, was a major city. It was, a, it was an it city. It was um, the capital of northern Greece and Macedonia. It was a place where Paul went and he, and he spoke the gospel. He preached the gospel in the synagogues. And uh, many, many Jews converted to, the, to Christianity. They believed in Jesus the Messiah. And then there were some problems. The Jews in Thessalonica did not like Paul, so they run him out of town. They threaten his life. They threaten the church's life. Paul has been separated from this young church that he loves. And so he sends his associate, his, his younger brother in the faith, Timothy, to go and check on the church. Check on my little brothers and sisters. See how they're doing. He, Timothy goes to Thessalonica several months later, comes back to Paul with a report. Hey, Paul, I know, I know you've worried about this church in Thessalonica, but they're doing great. They're doing really well, and you should be a proud big brother, uh, a proud father to these, to these spiritual children of yours at this church in Thessalonica. And so Paul writes this letter when he hears the report from Timothy. Paul hears that they've been doing well, and so he pens this letter, this, this epistle, it was the first epistle, many theologians think, many scholars think, and historians think that, that Paul wrote, the first letter that Paul ever put to paper, at least that we have record of, um, and, and, and he's writing in joy, he's writing in gratitude at hearing the report of what's going on. Okay, so that's the context. Now, as we, as we kind of zoom in, we've studied three chapters of Thessalonians, and there's about to be a shift. There's going to be a shift in tone as we start chapter four, and this is this is classic Paul, right? Classic Paul. He always seems to be so predictable. He, he always does this in his letters. He wrote 13 letters in the New Testament. This is over half the New Testament. This trend happens in his letters. He starts his letters in what's known in the, in the grammatical sense in the indicative tone, in the indicative voice, meaning he is telling the reader what is true about them because of Jesus. Let me tell you how secure you are. Let me tell you how loved you are. Let me tell you all that God has done for you. Let me tell you about your future. Let me tell you about your hope. Let me tell you about Jesus and what he's done for you. It is indicative. It is passively true about you, church. And then he shifts. Paul always shifts. He starts talking about, he goes indicative to imperative or indicative and passive to exhorting them and imploring them. Because all of this is true, church, because chapters one through three are, church, are true, church, in, in Thessalonica, now let me tell you how to live. Now let me command you and exhort you and implore you in light of all that God has done for you in the indicative, in the passive sense. God has accomplished this for you. Now let me tell you a response. Paul always shifts at some point, usually about halfway through his letter, from indicative to imperative. So we're about to watch that shift happen. We've studied chapters one through three. That's the indicative uh, voice, the indicative uh, 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 verbs dominate that section. And now Paul's going to move to start using imperative. He's going to implore them, command them, exhort them to live a certain way in response. And just so you know, that idea of indicative first, imperative later, 
this is what's true of you no matter what you do or have done, and now let me command you how to live and obey, that is uniquely and profoundly Christian. No other religion gives you the indicative before it gives you the imperative. It actually reverses it. Every other religion says, do this, do this, do this, if you want all this to be true about you. Christianity flips that and says, this is true about you. It doesn't even matter how much you believe it. It doesn't matter how much you accept it. It is true about you because of Jesus. Now, in light of that, live this way. So indicative to imperative, and we're going to watch the shift happen. You'll, you'll be able to hear it starting in chapter 4. So starting in chapter 4, verse 1, we're going to read verses 1 through 12. It should be on the screen for you. Verse 1 of chapter 4 says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me before we enter this text? Jesus, um, soften us, um, free us from the need uh, to, to force our heads and our hearts to fully understand something before we might listen to it and lean into it. Um, would, you, would you soften our souls? Would you make us teachable? Uh, bring us into, um, into a place that would, that would actually believe what you have to say to us is good for us. We need a fresh encounter with you, Jesus, as we hear uh, these, these commands, these uh, imperatives from Paul to the church. So teach us and guide us, uh, and most of all, show us Jesus, we pray. We pray now also for the one who you've called to teach your word this morning, that you forgive him his sins, for they are many. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. So you could probably hear the shift in tone. Uh, verse one, he, he starts, I'm urging you, I'm, I'm imploring you, I am, I am trying to plead with you to listen to my instruction, church. But what sets the table for the whole conversation of these 12 verses is verse 3. This is where we're going to kind of start our focus. Verse 3, it's it's a thesis for the whole section. It's what Paul wants to talk about is this. He says this, verse 3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. For some of us, that might be all we need to hear this morning, so you can tune out if it is. Um, this, this is the will of God, your sanctification. We, we ask this question a lot, even if it's just internally. We say, what's God's will for my life? If God would just show me his will for my life, I just need to know what does God want me to do? Who does he want me to marry? What does he want me to go to school? What job does he want me to do? What should, and so we come to God in, in, in crisis, epic, major decisions and say, show me your will, God. 
And we keep that, that theological topic, the will of God, only in the category of big decisions or what feel like big decisions to us. And I'm not saying that God doesn't have thoughts and wisdom to apply to major epic decisions. What I am saying is that if we shrink down the question of what is God's will for me and we only apply it to the major things, we will totally miss how the Bible approaches this topic. Now, I'm not, Paul is not giving all that there is to know about the, the grand theological topic of the will of God, but he just told you it, all that we really need to know, especially for this morning, about when we ask the question, what is God's will for my life? He said it right there. God's will for us is that we would be sanctified. Which means God's will applies to you when, like, when you're on your way to lunch after service. Like, how does he want me to treat my significant other? How does he want me to come uh, approach my job? Like, how does he want me to treat my siblings? How does he want me to engage with my neighbors? How does he want me to treat my server at the restaurant I'm going to after lunch? The, the question of what is God's will for my life is so incredibly, sorry, mundane, <laughs> Like, it actually really, really applies to your everyday interactions and decisions. And he just told you, what's God's will for me? What is this massive thing that God would want me to do? He just told you that you would be sanctified. What God wants, what God is concerned about, what God is applying his energy towards in your life is to sanctify you. This is the will of God, your sanctification. It's applicable in every decision. It's applicable in every season to know what is God's will for you. It's very practical. What is God's will that you would be sanctified? So what does that word mean? What does it mean that God longs for us, that God works for us, that God labors and wills for our sanctification? I'm gonna define that term sanctification and I will keep referring back to it all throughout our conversation this morning. But here's a helpful biblical a definition of what it means, what sanctification means, and I labored over every word of this definition, so pay attention. I'm kidding. Well, I'm not kidding, but um, you don't have to pay attention. So here's, here's a biblical definition of sanctification. When it says, this is God's will for you, your sanctification, here's what sanctification is. It is the process, very important word, it's a process of progressively making you look and love like Jesus. It is the process of progressively making you and I look and love like Jesus. And God is so committed to your sanctification that the moment you and I uh, come into the family of God, the moment we are saved, we are justified. We're not talking about justification this morning. But the moment our justification happens, we are justified before God, the process of our sanctification begins. And the good news is, is that God says in Philippians chapter 1, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Means God is committed to sanctifying you. It's like little kids going on a trip that they don't want to go on. God has thrown them in the car and said, you can have a bad attitude the entire way. We're going. Like this is what is happening God is more committed to your sanctification than you are. And the, the process of sanctification is the process of progressively making you look and love like Jesus, and he will do that for you. Another way to define it, if, if, if that seems too ethereal or abstract, is it is the process of progressively making you beautiful. Do you want that? Does any part of you even, even like get somewhat intrigued at the idea of becoming more whole than you currently are? Does any part of you want to be healed? 
Does any part of you want the places that have become bitter or resentful in your life to be transformed into places of joy and gratitude in your life? Does any part of you want to live more fully? Does any part of you want to love more deeply in all of your relationships? Does any part of you say, I want to be beautiful? From the inside out, there are things about my life that I'm tired of. I'm tired of my anger. I'm tired of my rage. I'm tired of my lust. I'm tired of my besetting sins. I'm tired of my greed. I'm tired of my selfishness. That you would go, please somebody remake me. Please somebody progressively in the process make me more beautiful than I currently am. Does anybody of you want that? If you even in a shred of your honesty want that, you belong to Jesus. You wouldn't want it if you didn't belong to him, and he's committed to making it happen. But that is the goal of our sanctification, the process of progressively making us look and love more like Jesus. And I think when we hear that, and you hear what that means, that sanctification means that God's committed to my beauty, God's committed to my healing, God's committed to my wholeness, we would go, sign me up. I want it. I want more of it than I currently have. There's just one problem. There's lots of problems. One main problem. Uh, In order to sanctify you, in order to sanctify me, there are parts of me that have to change. Which means if I say I want to be sanctified, I have to first admit that over here, I'm, I'm not there yet. There are parts of me that need to change, which means there are ways that I function that need to change. There are ways that I view myself that need to change. There are ways that I treat other people that need to change. There are opinions that I have about me right now that are wrong and need to change. And so if we're going to say, hey, sign me up for, for the, the process of progressively making me look and love more like Jesus, we have to at least be humble enough to go, yeah, and that means that there might be some excruciating things that I have to go through. Because it's going to be like signing up for heart surgery. And you don't sign up for heart surgery unless you trust the surgeon. But there may be a wound that the scalpel will have to cause to get in there and to pull some stuff out to make you whole and to make you healed and to make you more alive than you currently are. And so if we're all saying we want to be sanctified, if we're all saying, at least nodding a little bit on the inside, that we would go, Jesus, make me look and love more like you. Jesus, make me look and love more, more like I was meant to be. That we would also have to say, okay, I'm willing to let you have your way. I'm willing to let you lead me and change me and maybe correct me and maybe shift the way that I think about things and maybe like be wrong about a lot of things that I currently am committed to. So Paul here gives, the, gives the, the declaration, God's will for us is our sanctification, and so then he's going to give some imperatives, remember we're in the imperative section of the letter, um, that, that would lead us on the path of becoming uh, and looking and loving more like Jesus. So he said, God's will is your sanctification, and then he wants to talk about three categories. We're only going to focus on one of them today. And we're going to focus on the one category that Paul spends the most amount of time focusing on. It's not that the end of this chapter, when he talks about some other categories, aren't important. They're very important. But he kind of breezes over them. Not, again, not because they're not important, but we're going to focus where Paul focuses in our section today. And so here's, here's what Paul wants to talk about the most in these 12 verses. Here's where he spends the most amount of time talking about where we need to be sanctified. He's talked to us about sex. Now let me just make a disclaimer. I'm sorry, and I won't name any names. I'm sorry if you're here with your parents. I'm sorry if you're like, um, having to hear this sermon with your parents um, sitting next to you, especially on a couch maybe over here is who I'm thinking of. Um, <laughs> but I love them. Um, but, but 
we need to talk about this. We need to talk about this because Paul, I'm sorry at home, if you're watching home church with your family and you didn't know this is what you were signing up for. But before, we, before you jump off and get off of, of, the, of the exit ramp of the highway that we're on and go, he's talking about sex and the biblical understanding of sex and wants to sanctify our understanding of sex, I'm out. Or you think you already know what Paul has to say about it or the Bible has to say about it. Uh, let me ask this question. Who in here thinks that they need some sanctification when it comes to their understanding of sex? And, if, and if, you don't, if you don't think you do, let me ask this question. In your own sexual exploration, in your own sexual storyline in your life up until this point, how's that worked for you? Are you more or less confused? Are you more or less whole? Are you more or less joyful? So before you start assuming um, you know exactly what this sermon's gonna say and you know exactly what Paul has to say and you don't wanna hear it, would you, would you be willing to admit that maybe you need some sanctification in your understanding of this topic? Because here's what I know. Here's what I know is 100% true and I don't even have to know all the stories or names in the room or at home that are watching. Everybody in this room is sexually broken. Everybody. I don't care if you're single, if you've been sexually abused, if you're sexually abusive. I don't care if you're married, celibate, same-sex attracted, if you're a sex addict, or if you're terrified of sex. We all need some sanctification when it comes to our view of sex and our understanding of sex. Everybody. And so I hope you understand that, that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Nobody comes into this place or into this conversation needing this conversation more than anyone else. Now, your sexual storyline may have more wounds and more scars on it, but no one in this room understands sex in the, in the complete biblical sense. All of us need sanctification when it comes to our understanding of sex and our sex lives and our sexual desires and our sexual fantasies and our sexual uh, misconduct. Maybe you're in a marriage right now and your sex life is abysmal. You rarely have it and you certainly almost never talk about it. Or maybe you're single in here and you're wondering whether or not you're ever going to experience the true joy and beauty of sex. Or maybe you're in here today and this topic of sex has caused so much damage and so much pain for you that to even talk about sex being a joyful, blissful place sounds like an oxymoron. You've already decided it's too broken, it's too painful, it's too confusing, there's too many scars, there's too much wounding that's happened for you to ever begin to imagine understanding that the, that the, the Bible would say sex could actually be a place of great freedom and joy for you. If you fall into any of those categories, and, and I'm, not, I don't, I'm not even trying to hit everybody's heart on the bullseye so that I've nailed you and you go, okay, yeah, now I need to listen. I'm trying to throw the whole spectrum out there to say, hey, is it possible that we all need some sanctification when it comes to our view of sex? And that there can be no judgment here across the room or even like you thinking about you like wanting to go, man, I can't wait to send this sermon to somebody who really needs to hear this. You would go, no, 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 no. Paul's looking at everybody and saying, God's will for your life is your sanctification. First topic, let's talk about sex. That everybody that reads this letter would be able to go, I need to hear, I need to hear some of this. So Paul here, he says, this is God's will for your life, your sanctification. First topic, that you would abstain from sexual immorality. The word that he says there, when he says, this is the first thing I want you to know when it comes to sanctifying you and your view of sex 
is that you would abstain from sexual immorality. It's the first thing. The Greek word there is porneia. It's where we get our word pornography. It, it is a very general word that was used in, in, in ancient literature. Uh, Paul intentionally picked a very general word when talking about sexual immorality because it can mean basically any kind of sexual violation, anything. It, it, it's, it's the all-encompassing term to talk about there is some sexual brokenness here. And it, it, can, it can be used to apply to, to literally just about any category of sexual immorality. And Paul intentionally is using this word because it can deal, it can apply to anybody. That if I looked at your life, if I looked at your history, if I looked at your current fantasy life, if I looked at your current sexual um, approach to how you view this part of your life, I would probably say, like my own, there's some sexual immorality there. There is a wrong way to view sex going on in your life. And the first thing he says to abstain from sexual immorality, he then says, let me, let me unpack that a little bit. If you, want, if you are going to be sanctified in this area, you have to abstain from the whole spectrum of, of sexual misdeviancy. Then he says this. This is verse 4 and 5. He says this, that you know how to control your own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. The first thing he says on the path to sanctifying our understanding of sex is this. You have to learn how to control yourself. You have to have control over your body, not the other way around. Which, which speaks to um, the way most of us by birth, but most of us just in being human, approach sex instead. Like he wrote this 2,000 years ago. It was relevant then. It's relevant now. This is not a, Paul wasn't writing like, man, I bet in 2021 it's going to be really bad. Like I need, I need to get ahead of this curve, you know, a couple millennia. He's talking to the human experience. He's talking about this, this is what it means. Like everybody in every generation has struggled in this area and in this way. Because the natural way we come to sex and we come to sexual desires and sexual uh, preferences and sexual um, longings and fantasies is this. We are controlled by it, not that we control it. So Paul knows the first thing that has to change in our sanctification is knowing when it comes to sex that your body doesn't control you. You control your body. We literally take our sexual passions and we become subservient to them. We literally bow down to our desires. We bow down to our passions and bow down to our fantasies. And then we justify our actions by saying, well, it's just the way that I'm made. Or I just, I just, I just longed for it. I just wanted it. I, just, I needed it. I, I, I wanted to have it, and so I went and did it. We justify our actions in this area by blaming them on our passions and our desires. And in so doing, we bow down to it. We become controlled by sex and sexual desires. And in so doing, in so bowing down ourselves to our sexual desires and our sexual preferences and our lusts, we end up worshiping. That's what it means to bow down to it. That's what it means to be controlled by it. We bow down at the altar of sex. And Paul in Scripture would say, that's the wrong way to view sex. It's not the sanctified way to view sex. That's not the Bible's intention for your healing in this area. 
And so he says, hey, do you want to know how that looks in the world when you end up bowing down to what your body wants, when you are not in control of your body, but your body's in control of you? He says it, in, he says it right there in verse 5. He says, don't be caught up in a passion of lust like the Gentiles. That being caught up in a passion of lust is what it looks like to bow down to sex and our sexual desires. So he's saying, hey, um, Christian, church, um, the, a sanctified understanding of this is that you don't, you don't bow down to it. You actually learn how to control it. But the way that it looks in the world is that it's okay to just bow down to it and say, I, it's okay for me to get caught up in a passion of lust. Do you know the opposite of a passion of lust is? Do you know the opposite sanctified view of sex and sexual desires that's opposite of a passion of lust is? It's a passion of commitment. See, lust is always self-seeking. Lust is always thinking about your own pleasure and your own desires. No one ever lusts or fantasizes about someone else's pleasure. We only lust and think about ourselves. That would feel great. That would satisfy me. That's what I really need. That's what I really want. That's lustful. And to get caught up in a passion of lust is to say, well, I want that, so it's okay to have that. And Paul says, actually, the opposite of that is a passion of commitment, where commitment to another person is not thinking about self. It's thinking about the other party. What's pleasing to them? What's good for them? And commitment would say, I'm so focused on you and giving you what's good for you in this commitment that I'm not even thinking about me anymore. And so a passion of lust is thinking about self, and Paul would say a sanctified is sexual desires and sexual fantasies and sexual um, direction that's thinking about other people, thinking about the other party, which is why all throughout Scripture, start to finish, the Bible makes this very clear, that if you're going to actually ever enjoy sex, it can only be in the context of a lifelong commitment, otherwise known as marriage. It can only be in the context of a lifelong commitment. That's the way it was designed. You cannot have and enjoy someone else's body until you have fully and forever given them yours. That's the rule. That's the boundary. And please understand, Paul is not a buzzkill. God is not a buzzkill. Like they're not saying that to steal your joy in this area. God invented sex. He actually knows the way that it was designed. He made it. He knows the place where it's meant to be most enjoyed. And if it's just being caught up in a passion of lust without commitment, if you're going to enjoy someone else's body without first lifelong promising to give them your body, then you will never actually be able to enjoy it. He's saying the only place to enjoy it is within this boundary. The only place to enjoy it is within this setting. You cannot have and enjoy someone else's body until you have fully and forever given them yours. And, and I'm, I, I probably don't even have to tell you this, and I don't say this statement as judgment. I just say it to sober you up and, and to try, to try to get you to acknowledge reality. When you have experienced or explored sex outside of that reality, it's not enjoyable. It may be enjoyable in the moment. It may feel good for a season, but it is not lifelong enjoyable. It is not sustaining your sexual joy. You cannot have someone else's body until you have fully and forever given them yours. David Foster Wallace, who's an author of the last generation or so, I've referenced him many times, he's amazing. Um, I, I don't think I can 
technically recommend this article from the pulpit, but I'm going to reference it, so do with it what you will. Um, but he wrote this essay. It's the first essay in a book of essays of his called Consider the Lobster. Um, in like 1997, he went to the Adult Film Awards in Las Vegas as a journalist. And he went, they went there as a journalist and, and went to, to write an article about it, to write an essay about it. And he makes some profound observations at the Adult Film Awards. He's going to this place that is just all about the the consumer nature, the, like the transactional nature of what sex has become. And he's at this like award show, like the Oscars for porn. And, and, and he's, writing, he's, he's experiencing what it's like to be in a place that is totally celebrated and elevated, uh, this idea of commercialized sex and transactional sex. And he, and he makes this observation. He says, what it, what, is, what it was almost devastating to realize was that what we just said about you cannot have someone else's, you cannot enjoy someone else's body until you have fully and forever given them yours, that he understands that the intimacy, the vulnerability of being completely naked with somebody is such an intimate place. It's such a sacred place. It's such, it's such a tender place. It's, it's, it's such a holy place that, that he says, not a Christian, by the way, David Foster Wallace, not a Christian. He says, it is such a sacred place that for millennia, it used to be you have to pledge your life to someone in order to see them in that place. Like that's how, that's how sacred and intimate that place is of being completely naked with another party. He said, it used to cost you your life in order to see it in somebody else. But now you can just kind of have it whenever you want. Now you can see it on a screen. Now you can get it however you want, whenever you want. It used to say, it used to mean you'd have to promise someone to never leave them or forsake them if you were gonna see them in this place. But we've dumbed down sex to a consumer transaction and because we've dumbed it down to a consumer transaction, it cannot be enjoyed. It cannot be fully enjoyed in this way because it's a passion of lust, like Paul is speaking against, not a passion of commitment to the other party. And this is what Paul is reaffirming here. The boundary line for sex is within the context of marriage, within the context of a lifelong commitment. I know that when I say that, it's difficult to hear. Maybe challenging to hear. Please, 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 even, even just for, for the, the moments when you're in here, like give God a little credit. Like he, remember what the whole section's about. He invented this idea. He invented this reality. I think he knows how it works. And because he knows how it works, the, 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 the correction here, the, the instruction here, the imperative here, remember, is for our sanctification. God's will is to put you on a process of progressively making you look and love more like Jesus. God's goal in your entire life, in every area of your life, is to sanctify you. And this is the first area that Paul wants to talk about. The goal here is your healing. The goal here is your beauty. But we live in a world, like we said, that worships at the altar of sex. It worships, it, it literally puts sex on the throne and says, whatever it says, I'm a, I, I must obey. Whatever it is calling me to, I'm allowed to obey it. I have the right to obey it because this is what I desire and this is what I long for. And Paul would say, the Bible would say, if you worship sex in this way, if, if you come to the altar of sex and you don't control your body in it, it will destroy you. It, it, it will decimate you and those around you. But Paul's goal here is not to destroy us. Paul wants to heal us. 
See, the Bible demystifies sex. It dethrones sex. It takes it off of the place where we put it and says, as long as it's there in your life, as long as you are bowing down to it, you will never be able to enjoy it. It will, it will never actually be fully enjoyed by you. It demystifies it and dethrones it. And then, once it's come off of the throne of our life, once it's come down off of the place where we bow down our bodies to uh, sex and, and our sexual desires, only then, once it's off the throne, here's what the Bible says. You have no idea how amazing this is. You have no idea the beauty of this. You have no idea the power of this. You have no idea the glory of this. It demystifies it and then it remystifies it. And, and it's, it's saying you won't be able to be caught up in the enchantment, literally in the transcendent power of sex until it's off the throne of your life. Most of us have no idea what sex is really for. Most of us have no idea what sex can really do. That how you and I relate to the topic of sex, th- this, is the, this is the startling reality of what Paul is saying. That the way you and I come to this topic in our life, get this, sex has the power to sanctify you. Sex has the power to heal you. Sex has the power to make you holy. That's what Paul's saying. We need to talk about sanctification. This is God's will for your life. Now let's talk about sex. And does the Bible come to sex and say, hey, the way that sex is going to sanctify you is by demonizing it and purity culturing it and saying stay always away from it and never even have any feelings or emotions as it relates to it and and the less you can enjoy sex, the better it will be for you? No. The Bible says the more you understand its proper place, the more you understand how to use it and embrace that idea of it, it can sanctify you. When sex is in its proper subservient place, sex has a power you cannot dream of. Many people throw stones at the church and say that um, Christianity, I mean, I've literally had people, non-believing friends in my life that have said, I'm very interested in Jesus. I have no interest in the Bible's view on sex because it's such a killjoy. Like, I, I, I literally cannot get, get my mind and heart around that, and so no thanks on Jesus. Because the, the stereotype, for good reason, has been the Bible, the Bible has such a lame view of sex. Does the Bible have a negative view of sex? Are you kidding me? No other religion in the world, no other philosophy, no other way of thinking, no other worldview that has ever existed views sex the way the Bible does. Because here's what the Bible says about sex. It says it in this passage. Sex is for your sanctification. Sex has a power to heal you. Sex in its right place can heal you. Sex in its right place, an understanding of sex in its right place can make you beautiful. It wants to do that. That's, that's Paul's goal here. The Bible is audacious enough to claim that sex, when properly understood and practiced, can make you beautiful. It can progressively make you look and love like Jesus. And the first step in that, Paul would say to all of us, is to learn to control our bodies, not to be caught up in a passion of lust where we submit ourselves to it and just let it take us wherever it wants to take us, but that we learn to control it. I know, like I've said multiple times, this is difficult to hear, but if you'll stay leaning in for just a few more minutes, we're going to talk about the, the last few verses in this section on sex and our sanctification. 
And I know what, I, what we're going to talk about at first may sound harsh, and I know as we, as we close this, it, it may sound like purity culture, and you're going to have some PTSD if you grew up in that. I know it may, I know it may turn you off, no pun intended. I know that, I know that it, it, may, it may make you push away from the, the table and the conversation when you hear what Paul says. But l- let us paint a picture for what Paul is trying to say, okay, before you get off the off-ramps of even some of the terminology that Paul uses, lean in. Lean into what Paul is saying and understand this is for our good, not for our destruction. So Paul um, wants to tell us here about, um, here's, there is a way, there, there is a power here uh, that can change us. Um, and when I say change us, I don't even necessarily mean there's a power here to change your view of sex, and you've got all the wrong views of sex, and listen to Paul's view of sex, and you'll have the right view of sex. There is some correction here. What I'm talking about, though, is the power that Paul wants to talk to us about is the power to loosen our death grip on what we view and say about sex in our sex lives. And there's a power here to actually do this. Okay, Lord, I trust you. And so what we're gonna talk about is what would it take for us to actually open up our hands and say, all right, Lord, I'm willing to trust you on your view of this. I'm willing to lean into this and have you teach me about its design and what it's good for. So we're gonna look at two verses um, and, and, and the hope of leaning into this is that we would, we would submit our heart's demands and understanding and go, all right, Lord, sanctify me. So verse six, first, he says this. It's harsh, sounds harsh. It says, let no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. So I'm a Marvel guy. When it says that the Lord's an avenger, I got really excited. Um, he would destroy Thanos, right? We, this could have been all over, sorry. Um, it's not talking about that, <laughs> shocking. But when he says the Lord is an avenger, that's a word that literally means like a just punisher. And so what Paul just said is, is, is this is a big deal to the Lord. Paul takes what the Lord has, has communicated to him, and he's basically saying, um, this area of your life is really important to the Lord. He's an avenger. He's a just punisher when it comes to this. Okay, now, before we get off the off-ramp of going, I knew it, I knew it, God hates sex, God hates me, I've got a sexual broken past, he hates all this, just hold on. Look at what he says in verse 8. He says, let no one transgress or wrong his brother in this matter. Sorry, 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 that's verse six. He says, therefore, verse eight, therefore whoever disregards this, whoever disregards this sanctifying view of sex, whoever disregards this, doesn't disregard man, but disregards God. For he has given you his Holy Spirit. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregard, doesn't disregard man, but disregards God. Okay, so whoever disregards God, or whoever disregards this idea of sex and our view of sex and the boundaries of sex and not being controlled by sex and having a sanctified understanding of sex, whoever disregards this, the first person that they're disregarding is not the people that they may be sexually sinning against. The first person they're disregarding when they do that is the Lord, which means when you put together that the Lord is is a just punisher when it comes to this and to dishonor this view of sex is to dishonor, dishonor the Lord himself. Here's the picture that Paul is painting. The Lord takes this area of your life personally. 
And, and that, that may scare you. I hope it liberates you. The Lord looks on sexual impurity in all of its manifestations in our life. He, he looks on sexual immorality and he takes it personally. Do you know who takes sexual sin personally? Spouses do. You can ask any spouse in here, if you're not married, that when they took vows, part of their vows was, this is between us now, and I am not okay with you sharing this outside of this commitment. That spouses aren't cool with some sexual exploration outside of the marriage bed. Spouses take sexual sin personally. So when I look at you, when Paul looks at you and says, what he's saying here is that the Lord takes this personally. What he's saying is, the Lord is your husband. And he takes it very seriously, like any good spouse would. In fact, what he's saying is, is do you know the Lord is a jealous lover? He's a great husband. He's a faithful lover. He's so faithful to you, his spouse, the church. He's so faithful, he will not share your affections with other lovers. That's what Paul's saying. He is a jealous husband. And like a good, jealous husband, trust me, you want a jealous husband. You want a husband to not be okay in this area. And that's what Paul's saying. He's an avenger because he loves his bride. And when we sin in this way, please understand, this may be the most cosmic-sized shift for all of us this morning, that when we sin sexually, the first person we've sinned against is not the person that we sinned with, or not, not, not the person that we sinned against in, in the physical sense. The Bible would say, this is David in Psalm 51, when he has an affair with Bathsheba in his repentance of Psalm 51, he says something crazy. He says, against you and you alone, O Lord, have I sinned. What about Bathsheba? What about Uriah? They're, they're like, they're, they've been murdered and they, they, she got pregnant. Like, wait, what about them, David? David understands when I, when I am sexually immoral, my first infidelity was this way. Because the Lord is a jealous lover and he will not share you with other lovers. He loves you that much. In the book of Hosea in the Old Testament, Hosea is a prophet from the Lord, which means his job Imagine this, crazy, I know, was to speak to people on behalf of the Lord. Sounds insane. But he, he would literally get a word from the Lord, and then he would share it with the people. This is what the Lord has given me to share with you. Hosea's storyline as a prophet is a little bit different. Because not only does Hosea have to share the words he's gotten from the Lord, the Lord comes to him and says, hey, Hosea, i got this great idea. I actually want not just your words to be what the people hear from me. I want your life to be what the people hear from me. So what you do with your life is going to actually communicate a message. And he goes, all right, sweet Lord, like, are we going on vacation? Because you're like the God of rest and joy. Is that going to be awesome? And he says, actually, no. I, wa I want you to go to the streets, and I want you to find a prostitute. And I want you to marry her. I want you to buy her off the streets, and I want you to marry her. Because that's what it's like, the Lord is saying, for me to be in relationship with my people. I'm a faithful lover who never cheats on them and they keep sleeping around on me. So Hosea goes. I'm imagining that conversation was not easy, but he didn't just you know, skip down to the streets and say, I can't wait to do this. So he goes and finds Gomer, the prostitute. He buys her and he walks her home and he says, we're gonna be wed. 
I want you to be my faithful wife, and I'm going to be your faithful husband. We're going to live together forever. And I, I have bought you. I have redeemed you. And now the hope is, is that we would live happily ever after. And they start to. But then shortly after their married life, Hosea runs back to the streets and starts sleeping around with other lovers again. And Hosea is devastated. He's confused. Lord, what are you doing? I thought, I thought like, I thought me buying her and marrying her was, was it, right? Like I thought that was, it's like marrying a prostitute, but then we live happily ever after. And now she's gone again. She's sleeping around again. She's, she's, she's cheating on me with all these other men. And the Lord says, go back and buy her again. Buy her back, Hosea, because to communicate about the love of God for his spouse, you would have to go so far beyond reason and so far beyond your limits because the love of God is relentless and it cannot be tamed for his bride. He will come after his bride. And so he goes, he goes and he buys her again and he takes her off the streets and he says, Gomer, I'm here for you. I'll come back a thousand times for you. But sweetie, he says this to her, you can't keep sleeping around. It destroys me when you do this. It kills me on the inside. It angers me. I, I'm a jealous lover like our God is, and I'm trying to express to you, this, this, this decimates my soul when I see this happening in you. You're my wife, Gomer, and I will not share your love with another, he says to her. One simply cannot contain the furious and jealous love of God. And because it is a furious and jealous love, he will not share you with other lovers. And in this area, this is what Paul is saying. He's saying the exact same thing in 1 Thessalonians. He's saying you can't, you can't keep sleeping around. And when you do, you don't just disregard other people. You disregard the Lord it's as if the Lord is saying it, it destroys him, it, it angers him, it, it riles up his affections like an angry husband who's been faithful. It's as if the Lord is saying to us, you're my wife and I will not share your love. I'm not okay with this. That's the heart of the Lord when it comes to your view of sex and your sexual passions. That the same God that is asking you to trust him in of a sanctified view of sex is also saying to you, you have no idea how much I love you. I'm asking this of you and from you to trust me because I want your healing. I want our healing. And every time you sleep around, it destroys me. So here's the question. Would you trust him? Even if it outrages you to do so, even if it confuses you at first, even if it offends you to, to lay down your view of your sex life, to him, would, 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 you, would you open up your hands and say, Heavenly Husband, I trust you. I trust you with my sanctification, and you start here in this passage with talking about sanctifying my sex life. So lead me, correct me, train me, and teach me about being whole in this area. And, and I hope what you hear in that is the invitation from your husband to come home. Would you come home like Hosea with Gomer? Would you, would you come home and hear the words of your lover that says, I'm not okay sharing you? Let's pray. Jesus, we're all broken here. All of us. All of us, all of us, all of us are so broken here. There's things that have been done to us that have so wounded 
our view of this. There's things we've done on our own that have so confused our own understanding of this that we need you. We need you to guide us. We need you to woo us. And we need your help in even learning how to open up our hands in order to trust you. So would you do that now as we come to your table, we pray in your name. Amen. So we're about to participate in the sacrament of communion, which is so fitting uh, for this morning. Um, I want you to know that it's, it's just for the people in the room. If you're watching at home, I would, I would plead with you that while communion is happening and while we're setting up communion here, to, to maybe even practice like closing your eyes, um, even though you don't have the elements at home and you're not here worshiping with us, you can practice being still, you can practice breathing, you can practice repenting, you can practice um, prayer, you, you can be present at home with us here as we take communion. And so we're going to come to this table, uh, this sacrament um, of, of bread and juice, and, and it's, it's very fitting that we would do this. Um, but before we do it, you need to know that, that um, it's a it's a sacred meal, what we're about to do. You've got the little plastic kits with a little wafer and the juice. And it would be really easy to think, this is, this is just a religious thing that we do, and I don't have to stop and, and be still to, um, to, to be honest right now, or, or to be serious right now, or to, or to be sobered right now. But the Bible's very clear about this. This sacrament is, is um, it's holy, it's powerful, Uh, and and it is not to be trifled with, and so uh, we come to it humbly, we don't come to it flippantly, that, and I know that even in the topic of the morning when we're talking about sex, that you would go, well, well, I don't, maybe I don't deserve to be here, and so it's it's probably best for me not just to do it, and all of the, like, the, the brain treadmill that can start going, this is meant to still us, it's meant to sanctify us, it's meant to nourish us, and so we come to this table in repentance, we come to this table unafraid to admit how sexually broken we are. Because anything you've done sexually, anything that's been done to you sexually has been paid for by the body and blood of Jesus. You come to this table already pardoned because of what these elements represent. In fact, this table is proof of how far Jesus was willing to go in order to make you his bride. Book of Ephesians says he has washed you with his work. He has washed you with his body and blood in order to clean you up, to sanctify you, so that he might present you to himself as a bride without spot or wrinkle or blemish or any such thing. You are radiant to him because of these elements. And so we come to our husband in repentance and say, I'm sorry. Would you forgive me again for this, knowing that this table has purchased my forgiveness? And as you take and you eat and you drink, would you open up your heart to him and let him lead you in sanctification in this area? We're going to sing a song. Josh and Rebecca um, beautifully um, are going to lead us uh, in a song that you may not know. It's okay if you don't know it. It can just be sung over you. You can join in with it um, when you want. It's called All You Refugees, and the whole song is about coming home. Coming home to the table, coming home where your husband has set a feast for you, that he's washed you and cleaned you made you whole and so would you come home the table's big enough for you and all are welcome at the table you can take the elements whenever you see fit josh may ask you to stand and sing if you if you're not done being with the lord in a private way stay sitting doesn't matter but you take those elements we're going to sing two songs uh, before the service is over so at any time in the next five or ten minutes um, you can take the elements when you're when you feel right